Good morning. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I am so grateful this morning for many, many things. Um, I'm grateful, as Dale said, for all the ways um, that we were able to serve the less fortunate over the last month by being able to host the Cold Weather Map Program. And uh, thank you to everyone who participated in that, giving of your time and effort to make sure that they felt cared for. I'm also so grateful that we do have a building that we can use in order to serve people like that. And um, I'm grateful for those like Austin and Dennis who help and their team who help keep it in tip-top shape so that we can gather here and it's warm and we have a plowed parking lot and those kinds of things. So, so I'm very grateful for you and thank you for all the ways that your team volunteers in our church to uh, give us the space to meet in. Well, as we can see from all the different things that have been happening this morning, we are in the second week of Advent, and Advent simply means coming or arrival, and it marks the arrival of Jesus that we anticipate celebrating on Christmas Day, God coming to earth. But as Khalil alluded, alluded to, what's inherent in this season of coming is waiting. And similarly, my friend, I don't like waiting. Just ask my children how much I enjoy waiting for them when I call them to the dinner table. And waiting for Christmas Day to arrive has always been a struggle for me. When I was a child, I could not wait for that day to arrive. And I wish I could say that it was because I was just hoping to celebrate the coming of our Messiah's birth, but it was not. It was for the presents. I loved the presents. And one year in particular, I remember I had my heart set on a brand new pair of rollerblades. I was really into playing street hockey, and the pair that I was using, they were being held together by duct tape, and so my heart was so set on getting this brand new pair of skates, but I just couldn't wait to find out whether or not my parents would get that for me as my gift. I had to take matters into my own hands and find out for myself, and so one day when they were out of the house, I decided I was going to go look for them. And I found them. Not that they were hidden in a very clever spot. They were under my parents' bed. And so I pulled them out and I opened the box. They got me a brand new pair of name brand rollerblade inline skates. They were sweet. And I would take them out, and I would just, like, look at them, and I even put them on my feet. <laughs> and I took them off, and I put them back in, and just the way I found them, put them back under the bed, so no one would be the wiser. But as the days were leading up to Christmas, I, just like that siren call, I get getting called back to those that box of rollerblades whenever my parents were out just to take a little look at them and take them out and spin the wheels and just hear how smoothly those ball bearings moved those wheels and how comfortable they were on my feet. Well, one day they were out for hours and I was like, well, I'll take them for a little test spin around the block, right? It was, it was perfect. And I got them back in safe and sound, right? And on Christmas Day, 
I opened up my gift, and lo and behold, I received a brand new pair of rollerblades. And I thought I had, you know, done a pretty good job acting, selling them on the fact that I was surprised and to my excitement, look what you got me. And it was going perfectly smooth until my brother Steve said, why are the wheels dirty and slightly worn? <laughs> and the jig was up. Yeah. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, the nation of Judah also has a difficult time waiting. And what they're waiting and longing for, it's far more important than rollerblades and Christmas gifts, but it's national peace, security, and safety. But what we see in Isaiah chapter 19 is that when we rely solely on our own devices or schemes in order to obtain that thing we want, the security and comfort that we're all looking for, rather than trust in God, our plans inevitably will come up short. And more than that, they're not nearly as good or grand as what God has in store for us. But in order for us to experience that great gift, we must wait. We must wait on the Lord for peace. And so I encourage you, open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 19. Before I read this, let me pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. Would you open up our ears to what your spirit has to say to us this morning? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, our God. Amen. Isaiah 19 reads, A prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the Egyptians will lose heart. And I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The waters of the river will dry up, and the riverbed will be parched and dry. The canals will stink. The streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither. Also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river. Every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away, and be no more. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets on the water, will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. The workers in cloth will be dejected, and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. And the officials of Zone are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of fair... The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zon have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. 
The cornerstones of her people have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does, and as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit, there is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. But in that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand of the Lord Almighty raises against them, and the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. And in that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord. One of them will be called the city of the sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender, and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. And the Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be third. Along with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing on the earth. And the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Now that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now you might be wondering, how in the world did we end up in Isaiah 19 for our Christmas slash Advent text for this morning? And you're right, it's not your stereotypical one that we use uh, during these weeks normally. And I'll confess to you that I have been reading through the book of Isaiah, and sometimes when you're reading through these prophets, you can kind of lose the plot a little bit and just go through your daily reading and not necessarily take in all the great things you should be taking in. But I tell you, when I was going through Isaiah 19, the second half kind of hit me up the side of the head, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. This is the passage I want to preach on for our Peace Advent Sunday. Now, you may recall that the Israelites historically had very bad relationships with these two nations, Egypt and Assyria. You might remember that the Israelites were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt before God sent Moses to Pharaoh in order to let his people go. And the Assyrians, they were such a cruel and wicked people that when God told the prophet Jonah that he was to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, in order to preach there rather than obey God, well, Jonah hightailed it in the opposite direction to Tarshish. 
and it had to be dragged back in the belly of a fish to Assyria. Well, these two nations, Assyria and Egypt, they were two of the most powerful nations at that time in the ancient Middle East, and they were constantly attacking one against the other in order to build up their own empires and situated right in the middle. If we have a picture of a map that I have up there, you'll see right in the middle was Israel. And so they were constantly being trampled upon by one of these two more powerful nations, Egypt or Assyria. And in 701 BC, during the reign of King Hezekiah, Assyria was the one who was threatening the king of Judah at this time. And so there was this great temptation for King Hezekiah to negotiate a defensive alliance at this time with Egypt because Egypt was the one nation mighty enough to protect Judah against the powerful, cruel Assyrians. Egypt was a strong and wealthy nation, right? Their economy was secured by the famous Nile River, right? That not only brought them agricultural wealth, but it was a commerce highway and also a military route. Egypt was renowned for their great wisdom and culture in that day. And they also, when it came to gods, well, no other nation could rival the number of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And gods were also a symbol of power. And so for Judah, for King Hezekiah, Egypt seemed like a good bet as a way to shore up their security, to protect themselves against the Assyrians, a way for them to ensure peace. But this is what God, through the prophet Isaiah, is warning Judah's leaders against in this chapter we just read. Israel was not to make alliances with other nations because they were not to put their hope in them for security, not in the false promises of other human kingdoms. Instead, they were supposed to trust in the Lord's promises. They were supposed to wait on the Lord for peace. In verses 1 through 15, it is a poem that is comprised of three stanzas. And each stanza deals with one of these strengths of Egypt that had inclined Judah to put their hope in her. So the first stanza addresses Egypt's many gods and idols. The second was the Nile River, the source of their wealth. And the third stanza addresses Egypt's fabled wisdom. And these passages go on to show how each of these strengths that Judah and Egypt were counting on would eventually fail them. That their idols or gods, they would come to nothing. That the Nile River will dry up. That the wise counselors of Pharaoh would give senseless advice, the passage tells us. And all of these things will leave the Egyptians disgraced and despairing, but it will also reveal a clear message to Judah. Why count on Egypt? Why trust Egypt to save you when Egypt cannot save herself? Wait on the Lord for peace. For Hezekiah, making a pact with someone stronger in order to safeguard the nation, well, this would not only seemed prudent, but this was a practice that he also learned from his father, King Ahaz. 
to defend the land during his reign, Ahaz had made a coalition with none other than the king of Assyria. And to solidify their agreement, what Ahaz did was he paid the king of Assyria off with gold and silver that he took from the temple of the Lord. And this pact, it would eventually lead Judah into idolatry, just as Yahweh had warned it would. Ahaz started to worship the pagan gods of Assyria. He went around setting up altars all throughout Judah in, to, to worship these pagan gods. And in the end, it was Ahaz's unwillingness to trust in Yahweh and his reliance on other kingdoms for security that ended up being his downfall and leading the nation astray. And throughout the scriptures, you can see that the legacy of Ahaz is one of the worst kings in Judah's history. Fortunately for Hezekiah, he not only learned from the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, but he also learned from his, father, his father's mistakes, and he didn't ally himself with Egypt, but instead he waited on the Lord. We read in 2 Kings chapters 18 to 19, there's this account of when Judah trusted in God for their security and not their own plans or the strength of other nations, that he actually provided them the protection that they were looking for. In that account, uh, the Assyrian army fell upon the city of Jerusalem and the commander comes out and he ended up taunting the leaders of Israel in front of the entire nation. And they said to the leader of the, the commander of the troops said to them, he's said, do not listen to Hezekiah. He is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? After hearing this, Hezekiah, he went to the temple of the Lord and he prayed. And it says that after that, that the, that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies everywhere. So then the king of Assyria, he broke camp and he withdrew from Jerusalem and he returned to Nineveh and he stayed there. See, when we place our ultimate hope for peace or uh, in our own abilities or in human ingenuity or in world governments, we may temporarily get the security that we desire, but these, allegiance, these allegiances, they will always come at a cost. They will always lead to idolatry in some way, shape, or form. That's what counting on anything other than God for our hope or peace or joy or love is. It's idolatry. doesn't mean that we can't experience joy or love or hope in other things, but these things are just gifts from God. But they are imitations. They're not the real thing, and they never measure up to him. They're not nearly as good or great as God is and what he has in store for us. And in order to get that, we must wait on him. 
But Isaiah 19, it's not just a message to Judah to turn from idolatry, telling them to put their hope for security um, in him rather than in Egypt. This is also a message for Egypt to tell them to turn from putting their confidence in themselves and to trust Yahweh. This prophecy is an incredible message of hope that one day there will be peace between three arch enemies. It shows that Yahweh's plans are so much greater than we could imagine. It shows that just like we wait during Advent eagerly for Christmas Day to arrive, God, he is also anticipating a day to come that will inaugurate a peace beyond our wildest dreams. Six times in this passage, the Lord talks about this day that he is anticipating and how that day will alter Egypt's fortunes forever. The first time this day is mentioned, it's in verse 16. It says, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand of the Lord Almighty raises against them. Now this perhaps sounds terrifying, and it is. But the Lord doesn't just raise his hand against Egypt because they are his enemies. In fact, if you go back and read through the first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah, you'll see that the Lord raises his hand several times, but it's always to his own people. It's to Israel and Judah that he does this. So further down in verse 22 of chapter 19, we see that the Lord lifts his hand to strike Egypt only to heal them. And so the Lord is not striking Egypt to destroy them, but rather, like a parent, the Lord is disciplining Egypt because he wants Egypt to thrive. And you know, as a parent, coming up with appropriate punishments or consequences for my children's misbehavior is one of my least favorite parts of being a parent. But I also know that it is vitally important. In order for me to be a good parent, I can't just let my sons misbehave and it to go unpunished because that would be catastrophic for them and their future. Hebrews 12, 5, 6, it tells us, and you, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his child? My child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his child. And so the fact that the Lord raises his hand against Egypt in this passage, it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing. It shows that he is treating them as his own children, that God is disciplining Egypt because God loves Egypt. Now, the second time we see the Lord use this phrase, in that day, it's in verse 18. It says, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty, um, to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of the sun. Now, the language of Canaan was Hebrew. And this is significant because this is the fact that they're actually speaking this language now is our first indication that the Egyptians are being transformed. 
they are now speaking the language of God's people. They're speaking the language in which God first revealed himself to people. And the city of the sun was likely the city Hierapolis, which that was the city where they had the temple that worshipped the son of the God, or the, the God of the sun. But now Isaiah is saying that those citizens will worship Yahweh, the one true God. And then in verse 19, it's the third time this phrase is used. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender. He will rescue them. And so those altars or monuments that the Egyptians will build to the Lord, they reveal that God has come among them, right? Just like Israel's forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whenever God met with them, they would pile some stones together, these, these Ebenezers, these reminders that God had met with them. In the promised land, they, they built these things up, but now these buildings dedicated to the worship of Yahweh, they are in the heart of Egypt, and so they now demonstrate that Egypt is also the holy land. Then in verse 21, so the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings and they will make vows to the Lord and keep them. So now we see that the Egyptians, they are worshiping Yahweh through sacrifices in the same way that Israel was instructed to worship Yahweh. But there's an addition there. Rather than just the required sacrifices for sin, we see that they're also making these vows. And vows were not required sacrifices. They were completely voluntary. They were going over and above. And so the fact that the Egyptians are making vows and keeping their vows to the Lord, it shows the sincerity of their faith and that they have this genuine relationship with God and his kingdom. And then we hear this phrase a fifth time. In that day, there will be this highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria, and the Egyptians and Assyrians, they will worship together. This verse is saying that one, these once fierce rivals, these bitter enemies, they will now look at each other like siblings. They will be at peace with one another. And it won't just be a ceasefire, or a stalemate. You know, they'll actually drive down the highway in order to have family dinners together. I remember when I lived in Chilliwack, man, it was hard sometimes getting people to drive down the highway to come out to Chilliwack, right? That's the pit stop on the way to the Okanagan. Well, we'll have to stay overnight. <sighs> but I tell you, Assyria and Egypt, they're, they're making the trek. They're going to see each other because now they have been reconciled to one another. Now they are living in right relationship with each other. And together, they are worshiping the Lord. This is mind-blowing stuff. And then the final time this phrase is mentioned, it brings this chapter to its conclusion. In that day, Israel will be third. They'll be third. Not first. 
They're one of, they're not solo, not, not just by themselves. They'll be third, one of three, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Don't you see what's happening here? Isaiah is saying that by waiting on the Lord, by trusting him and not in any other kingdom or power or strength, that one day they will experience the security that every nation longs for, not living in fear of one another, but cohabitating, living together in true fellowship with one another. And even better than that, they will all have peace with God. And for Israel, she will finally be fulfilling her purpose. Remember that promise that God gave to Father Abraham way back in chapter 12 when he says to Abraham that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through them. It's finally coming to fruition. Now the whole earth is being blessed through Israel and not just Israel, but also Egypt and Assyria too. And by calling Egypt blessed and Assyria God's handiwork, these are terms that were exclusively reserved in the past for Israel alone. But on that day, that day that God is anticipating, they also will be part of the family of God. They are just as much his children as Israel. They are just as much his children as Israel. And I wonder how Israel felt about that when they heard this prophecy. You know, it'd be like today, telling Ukraines, God loves Russia, and that one day they will be a blessing to the whole earth. That's a bitter pill to swallow. That doesn't mean that God approved of Egypt or Assyria's behavior. God does not endorse when another nation violates another. But I think we can have a narrower idea of whom God wants to bless than he does. In fact, I think that if we're being really honest, perhaps we can maybe even a tiny bit resent how inclusive God's love is for those that we see as the enemy? When we read about the angels having this encounter with the shepherds in the fields, coming to them and proclaiming Jesus' birth and saying, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Who do you and I assume God's favor rests upon. Maybe a telling question for us to ask ourselves is, who do I believe God does not favor? Isaiah 19 shows us pretty clearly that God loves all the nations of the earth and that he plans to bring us all together in one great, big, diverse family from every tribe and nation and tongue. And when God sent his son Jesus to the earth, he did so because he loved the whole world and not just our part of it. And this is demonstrated in the Christmas account by the fact that we have these magi from the east who travel and come to worship the king of the Jews. I love how 
the Bible goes out of its way to include all of these unique people in the story that we wouldn't necessarily assume that, that God coming to earth would be uh, visited upon. Isaiah's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled even in the birth story of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 says, God our Savior, he wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And Jesus showed us that we are to love our enemies just as God loved us. While we were God's enemies, Romans 5.10 says. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And so we may have a hard time waiting for peace in our lives when we are experiencing trouble. But I think this passage encourages us to consider how grand the peace God has planned for our world is. And then you begin to start to understand the eager anticipation that God has for that day to come. And so we not only wait on the Lord for peace, we also wait with the Lord to bring his peace. As I said, I find waiting particularly difficult, and maybe you do as well. But waiting is not a completely passive thing that we do. There is uh, a way that we can wait and things that we can do. Like God does the main action when it comes to the waiting, but we have a part to play. And I think the first thing we need to do is we need to make space to wait. We can fill up our time with busyness and activity rather than having room in our lives to be silent, to be in a moment and to wait on God. I can find those silent moments uncomfortable Maybe you do too. And many of the things that we keep ourselves busy, busy with can just be distractions or worse, they can become idols. And so we can feel like our lives depend on those things. So we need to do the, the difficult but the holy work of decluttering our lives in order that we wait, can wait on God. So the first thing we do is we make space to wait. Second, we need to wait with expectancy. More often than not, God works in ways that we never imagine, doing things like making enemies our siblings or God becoming a baby. And even in our own lives, usually I have found that God has accomplished his will in my life in unexpected ways. And so we need to wait with anticipation that he will do something surprising. And a word that I keep hearing and and a good word that keeps coming back to me is we need to remain curious. So we need to wait with expectancy. We also need to wait with hope. Our world can feel like a very dark and grim place. You know, in the last couple of years, it feels like it's been grimmer than ever. But the gospel tells us that God sent his light into the world and that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and it cannot overcome it. 
Maybe some of you received this week in your emails, like I did, just an update from Allison Wagler about her friends that we've been praying for in the Ukraine. And I'm astounded by what they write. Every day we are learning to place our very lives and safety in God's hands. We don't know what will happen tomorrow or in a week or what will happen in the winter here in Ukraine, Lviv region. Currently, we have a few hours of electricity on, alternating with a few hours of water on and then off again. Sometimes there's a schedule. Sometimes we don't know when the power or water will come back on. They're saying that if the attacks on the infrastructure continue, we may lose power and heat altogether. And so we have faith that God sees us, that he gives us guidance and direction on how to live on as we wait for him. Oh my, what a testimony to hope-filled waiting. And that leads me to the final way I believe we are to wait. And I think that is we are to wait for more. You see, Advent may occur during the time that we celebrate Jesus Christ's birth, his first coming to the earth, but we are not waiting for that anymore. That happened 2,000 years ago. What we eagerly anticipate is him coming to earth again when he comes and he brings the kingdom of God in its fullness. I'll say it again. Celebrating Christmas is not what you and I ultimately wait for. In fact, for many of us, the Christmas season is full of more grief and conflict than it is joy and peace. But we can find comfort remembering that this is not all that that there is. This is not God's best that the best is still to come, and perhaps it's that longing and waiting where we find that we have something more that points us beyond Christmas to that day, that day that God eagerly anticipates, and we wait on him together with Christians from around the world praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you come, Lord Jesus? Would you return soon? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to come. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this, for your wonderful word. I thank you so much for what you are doing and that you are a faithful and good God. I pray for any of us this morning who are struggling with uh, a lack of peace in our lives. There is conflict. There's unsettledness. I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would encounter a peace that comes from above that can only be credited to you. And I pray that we would know good encouragement this morning. I thank you so much, Father, that the best is still yet to come, that what we're experiencing here, this isn't heaven on earth, but one day that we will experience that, and that day we long for. And so pray that you would be our strength and guide in the meantime and help us to be good representatives of, this, of the kingdom of heaven. And we thank you for your love. We love you too. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.